Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The National Guard embodies a particular American tradition of the citizen-soldier, taking as its model, quite literally in its iconography, the Minuteman of the colonial militias, the Guard is a reserve force made up largely of soldiers and airmen who have full-time civilian jobs as well that stands ready to mobilize in defense of local communities against a variety of threats, from natural disasters to civil unrest, and have also been deployed overseas during America's longest wars. The complexity of serving in uniform and holding down a civilian job is just one part of the challenges facing the National Guard. Even as the nation depends on the Guard, the Guard's command structures run through the individual states and territories, comprising 54 different organizations which places unique limits on promotions and assignments. Based in part on mutual unfamiliarity, the Guard's relationship with the Army is also not always as seamless as either would like. So to help us understand better the role of the National Guard uh, and the way that it shapes the careers of the Guardsmen and the way that it works with the Army, we have two guests today. And those guests are Lieutenant Colonel Pete Heltzer from Oregon and Lieutenant Colonel Michael Flaherty from Ohio, who are both students in the current resident program at the U.S. Army War College and officers in the National Guard. Welcome, gentlemen, to A Better Peace. Hi, Ron. Thanks. Hi, Ron. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's good to have you both here. So I'm, I'm curious. I, want to, I always like to start when I talk to current students at the War Colleges. Um, how would you describe your experience this year at the War College? I would start off by saying dynamic, given the current events going on. And with going from in-class resident to virtual learning, it's uh, almost akin to doing distance learning for ILE and the other things that we've done in our guard careers. It's been a fantastic year so far. Uh, Like every other experience I've had coming together with a group of of soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines from a across the country, you you make friends pretty quickly. And uh, this has been a fantastic experience to study things that I wouldn't ordinarily uh, have the opportunity to pay a lot of attention to. That's really good. I have to say, I guess I should say for our audiences, this this is the first uh, recording of uh, a better piece that has been done under the new conditions of the uh, coronavirus. And so for a change, uh, all three of us are in different uh, secure, separate locations, maintaining our social distance from each other, which has made for a very interesting year for the War College, especially for the resident program, where we're not all currently resident in uh, in Carlisle. But that being said, I am curious then for for the two of you as guard officers in the uh, in the resident program, right? You get to meet your uh, your counterparts in other branches and in, uh, also in the army and even in the other services. Um, what one thing do each of you wish your colleagues uh, here at the War College or fellow students, either in the Army or in other branches, knew about the Guard? I suppose I'll start with that one. Um, 
you know, the, the unique dynamic of having a civilian career uh, mm-hmm. and, and putting that and family aside for an extended period to go, you know, whether it's a, a combat deployment, whether it's a, a resident course like this that's, you know, 10 months long uh, and those other um, those other periods of time where, where we're taken away from our normal. Uh, the, the active duty folks that we get to spend time with and, and really a lot of the, the civilian uh, students as well, they're used to uprooting everything every couple of years, um, moving their household mm-hmm. wholesale. Uh, and we deal with, you know, family members with careers and businesses that, uh, that don't get to just get put on hold every time uh, the military calls. Right. Uh, and Mike, would you, would you say that's, uh, that's been your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, General Johnson, who's at the National Guard Bureau uh, in the Army National Guard, has always talked about is the unique equities of the National Guard and the multiple demands on service members' time. Not only the uh, full-time National Guard staff, but also the traditional guardsmen, which we call the M-Day guardsmen. So when we talk to our active duty counterparts and we talk about the capabilities, let's just say, of a brigade combat team Mm -hmm. that should have a certain level of capability to meet a certain mission set. Although true on paper in terms of getting a capable organization that can efficiently and effectively accomplish those missions, the, the lead time that we consider is generally in six to you know, five to six year mm-hmm. increments. So when we, we just think about the scale and what I try to communicate with my active duty counterparts is, okay, I recognize that you want something. I need to know at least three, ideally five years out when you need it, how much of you need it and how long you're going to need it for. So that's uh, always a constant tension between the National Guard component and our regular army counterparts is just in terms of the time scale um, from demand to actually getting everything aligned so that you have the right people and the right place at the right time to d- d- deliver the capability right. that the nation What needs. kind of time frame has the Guard faced for its overseas deployments to places like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, you know, I can take that from my personal perspective. Um, so the battalion that I just left command. We deployed to the CENTCOM theater of operations, you know, for nine months and about in 2017. Uh, the flash to bang in terms of what that was, was about 10 months. 10 months. And because of the mission set, because of the mission set, that was an adequate amount of time given the history of the organization selected to do that mission. Mm-hmm. Scale back or going back to the 2011 timeframe, the last time I deployed with um, that organization as in a different role, uh, they had about 18 months. Hmm. Going back even further, the organization had nine months. So hmm. in each instance, you had uh, different post mobilization training time associated with the type of mission. Um, was it adequate? Depends who you ask um, in terms of the performance at the when we were actually doing the missions. Everything that you would expect to happen for an organization that didn't have a lot of time, uh, you know, 
storming, norming, conforming, and becoming a very coherent organization. We felt that in theater because uh, when you don't do that job all the time, all those those hidden um, things that you just don't think about when you're doing your civilian job day to day start to emerge as personalities come together, as different mission sets come in. Sure. So it's um, different. Well, and I'm curious when you mention uh, a deployment in 2017, a deployment in 20, a deployment in 2011, uh, and an earlier deployment is about six years between deployments for a uh, overseas deployments for a guard unit. Is that uh, unusual, um, or because uh, I, I am curious, sort of how how often a guard unit finds itself deployed overseas uh, as opposed to an active duty uh, uh, unit? So the frequency of, of these deployments really kind of varies. Um, mm-hmm. Mike's experience at roughly six year stretches at battalion level fits with the experience we've had uh, in Oregon for that size of a unit deployment. But the other thing that we've seen across okay. the state is some element from company size through brigade size being deployed once a year and and often overlapping over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years of the global Mm. war on terror. So depending on what level of organization Mm. you work in, what your rank is, what your specialty is, uh, our our medevac company in Oregon deploys fairly frequently uh, in in some structure Mm. or another, whereas, you know, the infantry brigade combat team uh, was deployed 2009, 2010, uh, that headquarters is forward right now. And so for that hmm. level of structure, you know, maybe more like 10 years is the norm. And then as far as the flash to bang time, your combat deployments that, you know, six month to 18 month notice is, is pretty common. Uh, but then your natural disaster stuff, uh, you know, when they sent the 41st to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, we got about, you know, five days. Right. I was thinking that too, is certainly, uh, and you know, so deployed within your state, it could be even shorter than that. Right. Uh, uh, and what does that do then for your, you know, for your c- civilian soldier, your citizen soldier, uh, they get the notice that the unit is going to be deployed, uh, either to new Orleans, uh, or to Baghdad. Um, what kind of choices then, or what kind of what kind of decisions do the individual guardsmen have to make in a situation like that? Uh, and and what kind of what kind of relationship does one have to have with one civilian employer in those circumstances? Well, and that tends to vary by uh, by your employer. I'm fortunate to have a government job. Uh, the city of Portland has been very supportive of my military career over the years. Um, I know folks who are are self-employed on their own companies and will they certainly have the flexibility to deal with themselves as their employer, their business suffers. Uh, and you know, in, Mm -hmm. in many cases that can be unrecoverable. Um, and beyond the impact on, on us for these things and our families is that, that relationship with the employer, Mm -hmm. uh, they are, you know, less, shall we say, part of the decision cycle, uh, then, you know, we are, we're the ones that signed up. I was a soldier when I met my wife. So 
you hate to use that line. She knew what she was getting into, but it wasn't a complete surprise. <laughs> well, have either of you ever had a conversation with men under your command or even in your own experience where they were either changing jobs or looking for a job and they found that an employer wanted to know whether they were in the guard and that that may have uh, uh, gotten in the way of them getting or keeping a particular job? Unofficially, yes, uh, simply because an employer cannot uh, pro- cannot deny employment based on uh, National Guard service members' status. Sure. So simply because you're in the National Guard, the employer technically can't ask that question, number one, and, and it should not uh, play uh, a part mm-hmm. in terms of their hiring. Reality is that, and less so today now that the um, the demand for Army forces around the world uh, don't dip into the National Guard as much as it was during the surge in 2008, 2009. Right. And we can actually, in the National Guard and the National Command Authority, has actually evaluated the impact that unpredictability has on both service members, their families, and employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as uh, we in Ohio, and I, you know, had spent some time in the National Guard in Pennsylvania, uh, those leaders of the National Guard and the governor's respective governor's office do a great amount of work in trying to work with employers to ensure that um, they understand uh, the demands on the service mm-hmm. members' lives, how that might impact uh, their availability for their employment and criticality, uh, depending on the role that they uh, perform at their job. And then, you know, part of it goes back to the individual service member in their commitment to being an actual professional member of the military organization versus what they need to do to uh, continue to progress in their in their company or the business mm-hmm. that they serve. So mm-hmm. there's a, you know, a constant tension between, you know, service member, family, and employer, and then the personal goals of the individual service member. Right. And that gets to that question of uh, promotion and advancement within the guard as well. I think we, we, we spoke before we recorded and that one of the, one of the challenges right in the guard is that your path to promotion can be limited by the size of the national guard in your state. Um, and is it possible for, uh, how, how exactly does that change the career path that someone can choose to have within the guard, depending on the state they're in and the, uh, the specialty of the units that they are, uh, that they're assigned to in the guard. It goes back to perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I think Pete and I are both kind of fortunate that we have brigade combat team headquarters and rather large, uh, National Guard organizations. Ohio mm-hmm. is number four in the country in is terms that right? of the I'm size of the National Guard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got California, Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Hmm. Um, okay. You know, it's the top four in terms of size. So there is greater flexibility depending on their military occupation specialty um, as opposed, you know, but even within a state as big as Ohio, we do have some specialized units, our chemical battalion, and the one, the single chemical company that we have in the state. So that pyramid uh, in terms of non-commissioned officers and officers gets very, very steep uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, past the, the company grade, you know, the lieutenants and captains or the field grade, the majors, lieutenant colonels, it becomes very steep. So when you uh, have a very high-performing leader 
in soldier that is looking for additional opportunities to do something within the National Guard at a high, higher level of responsibility, they have to make a decision to potentially change their branch if mm -hmm. they're an officer or warrant officer or change their occupational specialty. And then that's why you, you may see uh, National Guard service members with up to six or seven occupational specialties for the Army or the Air Force Specialty Code, the AFSC, in the Air National Guard. Interesting. And it is not, uh, or well, actually I should rephrase the question, is it possible for a member of the Guard to, uh, if, if a member of the Guard moves from state to state, say in, in civilian life, um, does one take one's rank with one from, the, from Texas to Oregon to Ohio? Or uh, does that get more complicated in the Guard than it would in the... Uh, than it wouldn't no, the short answer to that is yes. Uh, we all have reserve commissions in, in the United States Army or, or Air Force, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so right. our, our rank is federally recognized. Uh, when we're activated, we're, you know, I, Mike and I have the same status as a lieutenant colonel right now than any active component sure. officer that we're in seminar with. Uh, and so that part will stay with you uh, should you need to move from state to state. Your service record goes with you as well, where you, how do I want to phrase this? Where you may face some challenges is in the relationship aspect of things. Uh, the guard mm -hmm. being community-based tends to not have as much flux with, with people moving in and out. And so where right. in an active duty unit, everybody's a stranger when they first show up, uh, within the guard, you tend to be more of a known quantity uh, within your state. And mm -hmm. so somebody mm -hmm. coming from, you know, Washington, Idaho, California, New York, D.C., to the Oregon Guard, they're going to need to establish some relationships and have their their work product, work ethic, uh, et cetera, become a known quantity in order to be more competitive for, you know, positions, uh, desired positions or, or advancement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and while we're talking about relationships, so what... Uh how have both of you seen the relationship between the, uh, between the, your, the guard and your personal experience and, uh, big army, um, when you're, uh, either when you're at the war college or in your, in your practical, uh, in your professional life up to now, what's that relationship like? Yeah. The tensions between the, the national guard and, or rather the reserves writ large and the, the regular army have yes. been persistent since, um, you know, 1916, when uh, we did the punitive campaign uh, in, into Mexico, and then the states fought against the federal government in terms of whether you can use the National Guard to uh, go outside of the United States. And, and then in terms of the time available, you know, how much time does it take a National Guard or Reserve component uh, organization to be uh, competent to deploy in a mission set that's, you know, very intense uh, national guard divisions during world war ii took as 
much as 18 months. And then there was, you know, tension between, you know, who should lead? Should it be a regular army officer? Or can we rely on this National Guard army officer who has a different set of experiences, but just as much time in total service? And that tension has perpetuated itself. You know, you look at the, the Gulf War, uh, where you had two brigade combat teams that, although they were mobilized, they did not deploy. Be- just again, there's a lot of reasons for why they didn't. And if you have a National Guard perspective, you can look at it as, you know, it's because the regular army didn't want to give the opportunity, or mm-hmm. from a National Guard perspective, or from a regular army perspective, it's it was just the assessment based on where they were at that time did not give confidence to the leaders to actually deploy them into an environment uh, which could potentially be uh, catastrophic in terms of loss of life if Mm -hmm. they were not fully trained. I think we've come a long way uh, based on the relationships that have been developed uh, between the National Guard Reserve and the Federal Army Reserve and the regular Army to uh, increase the amount of training available to the reserve component members uh, throughout their their life cycle uh, within their respective components, and because of that, um, uh, units that deploy at you know company battalion size and sometimes uh, a little bit less than brigade, you know, four to you know three to four thousand. Depending on the mission set, I'm I'm confident that the uh, regular army and the uh, decision makers in terms of global force management are much more comfortable today than say you know 15, obviously 20 years ago, in in doing that. I'm sorry, is that the, the, that it's the product of experience? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Pete, what do you what do you yeah, think I about think that? I think Mike brings up a really great point there. Um, I, I've said this in seminar before as well. My 20 years of commission service out of my 23 total looks very different than, you know, a seminar mate who graduated from West Point in 1999 or 2000. Um, They have Mm -hmm. got a lot more reps doing the combat stuff, doing, you know, that, that federal mission that, um, you know, the, the mission essential task list stuff. Uh, whereas they have not by and large gone and coordinated response with civil authorities to floods, forest fires. Uh, they don't bring that additional skill set to bear in the coin environment. Um, when you've got engineer companies from the guard of folks who are skilled tradesmen outside, plumbers, electricians, etc., they're able to bring a whole other wealth of, of experience to that mission set than somebody who has only uh, laid wire minefields and, and done that type of, of engineer mission. And, and there's a spectrum of, of tasks to be completed. Right. So in general, we could say that the, the army, the national guard is not identical to the army, uh, to the, the active duty army, but there, but each group, each, each unit can bring, uh, part of its special experience to bear, to enrich the, uh, the larger mission for both. What, what, what will you take with you when you go back from your experience at the war college back to your unit in the, you know, just at the beginning of this discussion, I asked you what you thought that people here needed to know about the guard. 
Um, when you go back to your guard units, what will you bring from your war college experience, uh, uh, either about your understanding of the army or your understanding about the guard's place in the larger uh, enterprise? I'll start with Mike. So what I'm taking back is just a more, a better appreciation of the constant tensions between the force structure, mm-hmm. the force mix, and the force employment especially as we transition to whatever this next phase of of uh, global competition and what that might look like going to the future and the dynamics, the environmental dynamics that impact how we think about the problems. Mm-hmm. And then as we look at the future force, multi-domain operations, what the most multi-domain task force is going to, you know, experiment on and then bring back uh, from concept and then how doctrine changes, you know, we're definitely just my personal perspective at another inflection point in the National Guard regular army history to redefine what we need, where it needs to be allocated in terms of the reserve component in the regular army. And we're going to have to make uh, strategic decisions that's going to impact you know, the National Guard across the states. And although, um, you know, from a a state perspective, each state's going to want to retain a certain level of National Guard uh, force structure Mm -hmm. and total number of uh, National Guardsmen within the state. But from a strategic perspective, you know, it's going to be some tough decisions are going to have to be made. And, you know, resting on the history of what the militia is, what the National Guard is, what it means to be a citizen soldier, uh, that's going to change. And we're going to have to be, you know, adapt to that as to ensure that, you know, as a National Guard, we're able to fight America's wars, secure their homeland and continue to build partnerships abroad. Nice. Pete, what would you like to add to that? What, do you, what will you take back to your experience with the uh, from the War College? Oh, that's to hard to follow. Uh, Mike had a great answer there. Um, <laughs> you know, for those of us uh, in the Guard, aside from the relatively small number that work at National Guard Bureau um, and, and the Pentagon, most of us are familiar operating at division level and below and even mm-hmm. more prevalent than that is brigade and below. And so that, that bigger picture of, you know, the resources available, the opportunities for partnerships um, with active components, with uh, the federal reserve, with other States um, and how, you know, the international environment uh, and, and resources can impact local decisions and, and just try to have that, mm-hmm. that larger strategic view of things. Great. Well, gentlemen, I have to say, I've really enjoyed having you in here for this conversation, our first uh, uh, completely remote conversation here on A Better Peace. Uh, there's a lot to consider about the relationship between uh, citizens and soldiers and citizen soldiers and soldiers. I hope that this conversation has helped those of us listening to understand better both the, the role of the National Guard and its relationship to the Army. Um, I definitely want to thank uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Heltzer and Lieutenant Colonel Michael Flaherty for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you, Thanks, gentlemen. Ron. 
And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us suggestions for future ideas. We're always interested to hear from you at our website. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.